I spend a lot of time thinking about consciousness. The problem of consciousness is a scientific concern. The function that consciousness might have. The senselessness of a world without it. And the preposterousness of a world which has it. A puzzle occasions my mind about the way people commonly think of consciousness. We generally assume that there is at least a good chance of consciousness being an epiphenomenon. That conscious will and authorship of our own thoughts is an illusion. There is definitely something to this. Just because something feels as if it is under our control doesn't prove that it really is. Introspection is no guarantee of real insight. We can be wrong about quite a lot. But I have an inquiry to make today. Is my interest in consciousness proof that consciousness is not an epiphenomenon? We are living in a very strange timeline if I, the mind of Jesse Winters, am merely a witness to this guy's musings about me without his being affected by me or even aware that I exist. For all you know, I, the conscious mind of Jesse, don't care at all about what Jesse is saying to you now. If I make no difference, then it would be only a coincidence that I share the thoughts and opinions which Jesse expresses to you. An epiphenomenon is an effect that itself makes no difference. T.H. Huxley gives us the classic example of the steam whistle on a train. Here he is quoted by William James. Huxley said, quote, The consciousness of brutes would appear to be related to the mechanisms of their body simply as a collateral product of its working, and to be as completely without any power of modifying that working as the steam whistle which accompanies the work of a locomotive engine is without influence on its machinery. Their volition, if they have any, is an emotion indicative of physical changes, not a cause of such changes. The soul stands related to the body as the bell of a clock to the works, and consciousness answers to the sound which the bell gives out when it is struck. Thus far I have strictly confined myself to the automatism of brutes. It is quite true that to the best of my judgment the argument which applies to brutes holds equally good of men, and therefore that all states of consciousness in us, as in them, are immediately caused by molecular changes of the brain substance. It seems to me that in men, as in brutes, there is no proof that any state of consciousness is the cause of change in the motion of the matter of the organism. If these positions are well based, it follows that our mental conditions are simply the symbols in consciousness of the changes which take place automatically in the organism, and that to take an extreme illustration, the feeling we call volition is not the cause of the voluntary act, but the symbol of that state of the brain which is the immediate cause of that act. We are conscious automata." Unquote. This argument is pretty compelling, not least because T. H. Huxley had an incredible talent with words. In fact, this is probably the leading perspective among natural scientists. I certainly can't disagree with the principle that what goes for the brutes goes for men, or in more contemporary language, the animal brain is doing the same kind of thing that the human brain is doing. Descartes distinguished between animals and humans on the grounds of the rational soul. That might function as a metaphor, but I see no reason for believing in an actual soul living in dualism with the physical brain, and I especially cannot imagine a compelling argument for the suggestion that this is an advantage given only to the human species. Such arguments have been proffered, of course, but I don't think they are biologically sound. Anyway, Huxley concludes that humans and beasts alike are conscious automata. Consciousness is something which occurs, but it has no causal power. It is like the sound which occurs when the bell is struck. This has no power to move the clockworks. I have made a counter-argument before, and today I'm wondering about another angle of attack. Let me start with a quote from myself back in episode 3. 
That's the episode where I presented my argument against consciousness as an epiphenomenon. The only alternative to consciousness being an epiphenomenon is that consciousness itself serves a function. That rather than being a side effect, consciousness makes a causal difference in the world. In episode 3 I said, Presumably, either consciousness serves an adaptive function or it is a side effect of some brain process that is adaptive. In either case, natural selection seizes upon the adaptive advantage and creatures such as us wind up with consciousness. What breaks this impasse for me is a deeper evaluation of what it is like to be me, a closer inspection of my qualia. I perceive certain colors and shapes in my visual scenes, and those colors and shapes seem to be consistent from one experience of a visual kind to another. So if I see my car in the driveway today, it looks to me like my car yesterday. This consistency of visual perception enables me to comprehend my surroundings. Of course, the human organism needs to respond appropriately to the physical features of its environment. But if I am no more than a witness, then it is unnecessary and superfluous that I should have a coherent understanding of anything. The basic observation extends to all kinds of perceptions, the way certain foods taste compared to others, the way certain objects feel in my hands or textures feel upon my skin, the sound of a certain voice or other common things encountered during the day. So stimuli presented to the receptor systems of the physical brain produce consistent effects in my mind. That would be the case even if consciousness were epiphenomenal, so long as similar neuronal network activities produce similar qualia in me. That seems plausible. But what about qualia like pain and pleasure? If the effect on my mind is of no consequence to this animal, it seems a remarkable coincidence that all of the things that are pleasing to me are favored in the behavior of the animal I accompany, while all of the things that are displeasing to me are avoided. Imagine being the impotent consciousness of a person who eats the foods that you hate, surrounds himself with sounds and smells that drive you to distraction, vigorously pursues sexual congress with mates that you find unattractive and otherwise behaves in a manner that causes you discomfort and distress all day. In the epiphenomenal case, it would make no difference. Any number of counterexamples can be summoned in contrast to this. Human organisms like salt, fat, and sugar, alcohol, sex, compliments, and the esteem of other humans. So do I. I like all of those things. When this human animal behaves in a manner that achieves its evolutionarily determined objectives, I experience rewarding qualia. It feels good to me when this animal behaves in certain ways or when things are good for this animal. By contrast, injury or illness or neglect or social isolation, all clearly against the evolutionary interest of the animal, each are accompanied by unpleasant and horrible qualia from me. If qualia are produced as an arbitrary side effect of neuronal network activities, why aren't the qualia arbitrary? Parsimony requires me to conclude that my consciousness is not an epiphenomenon. The alternative seems a lot less plausible. Suppose, for example, that the brain processing that takes incoming data streams and produces appropriate behavior must produce qualia as a side effect. This would amount to a functionalist description of brain processing that is essentially algorithmic, but with a physics that produces subjective experiences. The qualia produced might be consistent from instance to instance of a similar kind of brain processing, but they could be like anything at all that happened to result from the algorithm being run. I'm not a trained philosopher, but the structure of this argument goes something like, 1. If conscious contents were epiphenomenal, we would expect them to have an arbitrary relationship to the brain processes which produce them. 2. Conscious contents do not have an arbitrary relationship to the brain processes which produce them. Therefore, 3. Consciousness is not epiphenomenal. That ends the portion from episode 3. I promised you a new angle of attack. At the beginning of today's episode, I asked the question, is my interest in consciousness proof that consciousness is not an epiphenomenon? Here's my point. 
T.H. Huxley argued that we are conscious automata. How did he know that? What makes the hand and tongue of T.H. Huxley express that notion? The hand and tongue cannot be acting on the information that T.H. Huxley is conscious. And presumably, the conscious mind of T.H. Huxley is satisfied with what his hand and tongue have expressed. These cannot both be true, as well as the statement that we are conscious automata. We have a funny little logic problem. Huxley the mind knows with certainty that he is conscious. Huxley the hand and tongue are unknowing of and unaffected by the mind. Huxley the hand and tongue express certainty that he is conscious. Huxley the mind feels agreement with what the hand and tongue are saying. In order to make sense of this, we have to make one of two moves. Either one, we have to say that the hand and tongue would express notions about consciousness whether or not consciousness existed. Or two, Huxley isn't actually conscious. His hand and tongue are just saying that he is. The first option makes the expression worthless, and the second option falsifies the expression directly. This starts to look like postmodern gibberish. According to the postmodernists, as I read their claims, there is literally no such thing as truth. This is from A.C. Grayling's The History of Philosophy. Grayling writes, quote, Derrida's deconstructionism turns on the claim that there is no such thing as a subject matter, a topic, or point of a discourse, a singularity that brings one's understanding to a focus. To think that there is something that can be grasped in a discourse is to continue to be imprisoned by a metaphysics of presence. There is neither subject matter nor truth. There are only perspectives in their deferral, this latter being the continual escape of meaning from the effort to pin it down, the escape of a text or utterance from efforts to attach, attach it securely to a definite sense. When we try to understand, all that we encounter is ruptures and deviances. The effort to understand merely exposes misunderstandings." Unquote. The work of Derrida looks more like an art project than philosophy. The point of his writing is that his writing can have no point. Either his claims are true, in which case they are necessarily false, or they are just false. I wonder if all the students of postmodernism realize this. If they do, then they get the point. But you can't get the point because the whole argument is that having a point is impossible. That's beautiful and stupid, hence art, not philosophy. Define irony, trying to comprehend Derrida. Let's get back to the, to the discussion of the day. It may seem an intellectual cruelty to use T.H. Huxley's mind as evidence that T.H. Huxley is wrong about consciousness, but I've enjoyed the exercise. We could just as easily test consciousness as an epiphenomenon against the thoughts of Descartes, or Searle, or Dennett, or Churchland on the subject. A necessary premise of philosophy is that we can talk about our ideas. Ideas are contents in consciousness. They are thoughts. Obviously, non-conscious processes beginning in the brain are responsible for moving the tongue and mouth as we speak, just as they are responsible for carrying out the rest of our muscle movements. In the passage above, Huxley said, In men as in brutes there is no proof that any state of consciousness is the cause of change in the motion of the matter of the organism. He is not referring exclusively to body movements. If he were, then his argument about us being conscious automata would not be as strong. Consciousness might serve important functions other than controlling the movement of muscles. In fact, I don't claim that the movement of muscles is under direct conscious control, whether it feels that way or not. I am simply making the broader point that consciousness should serve a function for the organism. That is, the mind itself must make a causal difference which is greater than the sum of individual neuronal events. I can't give you a research program or a body of evidence to show how this could be accomplished. At least not yet. But if the scientific community can become convinced that we should expect consciousness to serve a function, then such a research program might be undertaken. 
William James was against epiphenomenalism, but even in the 19th century he was not making claims for the movement of bodily appendages by means of conscious will. Rather, he argued that consciousness is in the business of selection among alternatives. The following is from the Principles of Psychology. James writes, quote, The performances of a high brain are like dice thrown forever on a table. Unless they be loaded, what chance is there that the highest number will turn up oftener than the lowest? All this is said of a brain as a physical machine, pure and simple. Can consciousness increase its efficiency by loading its dice? Such is the problem. Loading its dice would mean bringing a more or less constant pressure to bear in favor of those of its performances which make for the most permanent interest of the brain's owner. It would mean a constant inhibition of the tendencies to stray aside. Well, just such pressure and such inhibition are what consciousness seems to be exerting all the while. And the interests in whose favor it seems to exert them are its interests in its alone, interests which it creates and which, but for it, would have no status in the realm of being whatever. We talk, it's true, when we are Darwinizing, as if the mere body that owns the brain had interests. We speak about the utilities of its various organs and how they help or hinder the body's survival, and we treat the survival as if it were an absolute end, as existing as such in the physical world, a sort of actual should-be, presiding over the animal and judging his reactions, quite apart from the presence of any commenting intelligence outside. We forget that in the absence of some such super-added commenting intelligence, the reactions cannot be properly talked of as useful or hurtful at all. Considered merely physically, all that can be said of them is that if they occur in a certain way, survival will as a matter of fact prove to be their incidental co consequence. The organs themselves and all the rest of the physical world will, however, all the time be quite indifferent to this consequence, and would quite as cheerfully, the circumstances changed, compass the animal's destruction. In a word, survival can enter into a purely physiological discussion only as a hypothesis made by an onlooker about the future. But the moment you bring a consciousness into the midst, survival ceases to be a mere hypothesis. No longer is it, if survival is to occur, then so-and-so must brain and other organs work. It has now become an imperative decree. Survival shall occur, and therefore organs must work. Real ends appear for the first time now upon the world stage. The conception of consciousness as a purely cognitive form of being, which is the pet way of regarding it in many idealistic, modern, as well as ancient schools, is thoroughly anti-psychological." This is important because the mind or consciousness itself is ultimately how we understand ourselves and events that occur in the world. We observe that a monkey climbs up a tree and takes a piece of fruit because it wants to. It is hungry or curious or something. We do not make that inference when we observe the piece of fruit to have fallen from its branch due to the wind. We do not claim that the wind wanted the piece of fruit to fall. Clearly, consciousness on the part of the actor is the thing which makes the difference. Are we wrong to make such a distinction? If we can't make that distinction, then psychology is witchcraft. I'm with William James on this score. One final thing of a macabre nature. It's difficult to argue that suicide is in the interest of survival. You can imagine a parent being willing to die, in fact to die purposefully for the benefit of its young. This is not really suicide, but even allowing this to be called suicide, it is not the ending of life, but the preservation of life. Taking the survival of genes rather than the survival of the individual, the point holds. Suicide as the end of survival is not in the interest of the body or its genes. Ending one's life, obviously enough, is done for the purpose of ending suffering. This is something which characterizes the mind not the brain. If consciousness is not part of the brain's causality, 
If consciousness makes no difference in the world, then the state of mind of one who commits suicide is irrelevant to the act being committed. That's pretty hard to believe, isn't it? Either we accept that the person ended his or her life due to their misery, or we have to make the leap to saying that their mental misery was just a coincidence. See what I did there? Leap.